I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. My name is Dave Koresh. I'm speaking to you from Mount Carmel Center. The first thing that I would like to introduce in our subject is the reasons for the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, commentary states that what John has written in Scripture is nothing other than the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it, signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, John bare the record of God and the word of Christ and of all things that he saw. In the first chapter of Revelation, it says, Blessed is the man, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and those who keep the things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. Scripture states, John writes this to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, so forth. Naturally, we must understand that we're not in Asia. These churches once existed long ago, being beneficiaries of power and the gifts of the gospel that was originally introduced by the man himself. Some know him as Jesus Christ. Others knew him by the name Shua. What we're trying to present today may in some wise shed a better light in regards to my situation and my predicament here at Mount Carmel. One point I'd like to bring out before we continue is that if we take a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the burden of these ancient writers, the burden of heart, the burden of mind and spirit to put into scriptural record their personal experience with Christ. A record that is to be received by men, all men who will receive it, 
point is true that not all have seen Christ. But it has been in the wisdom of God that certain men who were witnesses of his life and death and resurrection, that they would bear witness by the written word and testify to the generations to come of the terrible happenings that took place when the men of that generation would not believe in the man who through so many obvious evidences proved beyond shadows of doubt that he was the Son of God. But sad to say, if we take a look at the record of John, the Gospel writer John, say chapter 7, we see in Scripture John writes that after certain events, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He would not walk openly. He would not walk in Jewry. He would not walk amongst the Jews because the Jews sought to kill him. We might wonder why. Wasn't Christ such a good man? Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart in and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see thy works that thou doest, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Strange statement, isn't it? It's funny how that when men live and have to deal with realities of life, that even a man like Christ can have to meet with unbelief, even from his own brethren. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. And I'm sure most of all Bible students will agree the time referred to is the time of his crucifixion. They wanted to kill him, and he didn't want to show himself openly. Then Jesus said unto them, Excuse me, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet to this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. You would wonder why a man like Christ would have something to hide. I mean, surely the angels would protect him, obviously. A person would think a lot of things about this strange character and disposition of character. But we're sure, being Christians, that Christ knew what he was doing. Then the Jews saw him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others says, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now we understand the Jews at that time had their own religious political network, didn't they? They were pretty strong on the religious spectrum, although they had no actual political power. They were subject to the Roman government and not to their own judicial Levitical laws. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now the days of Israel, most 
scholars and teachers will agree that the schools of Israel ordained by the Sanhedrin and also the Pharisees were schools similar to the ones of our own theological schools of today, of which a careful student of Scripture observes that nowhere is it written in the Gospels that Christ ever attended these schools, but at the age of 12, he did enter to the temple and had a most unique and interesting discussion with the religious leaders, of which they were quite amazed at such a young lad's knowledge of Scripture. Now, this man was teaching something, no doubt, Christ, that is, that inspired the people to say, you know, how knoweth this man, you know, letters, having never learned? They marveled. Jesus answered them and says, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Now, what does that mean? My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do the will, do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Now, friends, people that love the Lord, this is where we begin to uh, talk about some serious things. I'm sure you're all aware of how, how I'm involved in a very serious thing right now. And I'm sure that a lot of you realize that I should be possibly scared concerned. There's women, children, and men involved in our situation here at Mount Carmel. But I am really concerned about the lives of my brethren here, and also really concerned even greater about the lives of all those in this world. You know, without Christ, without Jesus, we have no hope. Why? Well, because we know that the standard of God's righteousness is a law, a law of Ten Commandments, a law of statutes and judgments, and which God gave unto Moses from Sinai, saying, This is thy righteousness, O Israel. But you know, God also gave another law, a law revolving around a system of shedding a poor and innocent lamb's blood, so that all who would break the law of God who would seek God for forgiveness and pardon, had to bring a lamb, something innocent, and slay it. Although Israel themselves never really knew the real meaning of this. Nonetheless, they were commanded to do it. Also, there were other sacrifices, such as turtle doves, goats, oxen, red heifers. But it was a very sophisticated and very prolific type system of worship. Of course, God had to give these people a, their own country, he had to give them blessings and things to be able to perform these rituals. And actually, of course, having to slay a lamb for your sins or such sacrifices, it would definitely keep a man on guard not to sin too much, because otherwise he could lose the livestock pretty quick, couldn't he? Well, anyway, thanks be unto God, from as far back as Deuteronomy 32 all the way through to Malachi, there has been other writings, writings of the prophets, writings who do not usurp the authority of Moses, but actually exalt the law of Moses, but yet there's an additional testimony for the same God of heaven, who's rich in mercy, has not only given to men a law, but also a way of escape for those repentant souls 
who might fall short of the glory of God's law. Which some scholars will agree that the glory of God's law is it's a divine precept of his own character. God's character is revealed in the law. Now, Christ is the only hope for a world that sins. Now, how do we know? Well, the prophets have prophesied. But what if we're not familiar with the prophets? Well, were the Jews familiar with the prophets when this word of God was made flesh? When Mary, the virgin, had a baby boy, did everyone believe that she was really a virgin when Christ was conceived? If we search the scriptures, we'll find that in certain arguments, the Pharisees confronted Christ and said to him, We be not sons born of fornication. Well, obviously not everyone believed that he was a child of a virgin birth. If they hadn't looked back to Isaiah chapter 8 and learned the mystery of Emmanuel, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, then they might not really put too much authenticity uh, into uh, the fact that Christ at that day claimed to be born of a virgin. I mean, if Isaiah the prophet was a false prophet, well, then naturally they would conclude that anyone claiming to have these things fulfilled would be false, too. But, of course, Christ, he did something more than just fulfill prophecy. He did miracles, miracles of mercy, such as killing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead. And if we study, we'll see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gives us in somewhat a full view of the opposition and also the confidements that he had in doing these miracles. He gathered many into him through the means of these miracles. But sad to say, even though he had done so many miracles, Scripture says, yet when it came right down to it, they did not believe in him. It's amazing to think that even his own disciples forsook him, except Mary Magdalene. She stayed with him to the very end, didn't she? Last to leave the cross, first to come to the sepulcher. Now we need to sit here and we need to ask ourselves a question. How come the men of that generation did not believe in Christ? In Matthew 23, Christ had to say to the Jews, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. Why? He tells them that they have forsaken the prophet. Thou that killest the prophet, how often I would have gathered you. How does the subject of gathering Israel and the prophets combine together? Then he tells them that their house, their temple is left to them desolate. And then in Matthew 24, as Christ said on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him secretively to ask him, concerning these things. What should be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Well, Christ begins to tell them, let no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, and shall deceive many. A lot of Bible students think that verse refers to people coming and saying that they themselves are Christ. Well, naturally, if someone comes claiming to be Christ, Christ covers that subject by saying that if any shall say, Lo, he's in the desert, believe it not. Go not forth. If he's in the secret chamber, believe it not. But he goes on to say that as lightning shines from the east, even to the west, so also shall his coming be. And he goes on to add, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, unless we knew what was on the mind of Christ the day he sat with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, 
and gave the instruction to them according to Matthew 24. Unless we could look into his mind, we would only have to speculate. It would only be an opinion to try to figure out what it means, wherever the carcass is, the eagle. What carcass? Whose carcass? What eagle? What are the eagles? Well, Christ tells you many signs in Matthew 24. He says, when you shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Of course, it says, he that readeth, let him understand. Those that you are, who are in Judea are supposed to flee to the mountains. Now, what kind of points are these? What is in the mind of Christ? Is Christ trying to tell us that we need to go back and study the prophet Daniel to see if maybe Daniel had some insight in regards to an abomination and make it desolate? Now, an abomination is something nobody wants, especially if it makes us desolate. Now, what do these things mean? Well, we learned earlier in the book of John, Christ stated, my doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. Now, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and everybody in the Christian world is free to hear these men reveal Christ, the Christ they lived with, the Christ they loved, the Christ that they didn't understand sometimes, the Christ that they had to see cruelly mocked and beaten and ridiculed and rejected and killed. But thanks be unto God on the cross, their Jesus stated, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he also said, which is a point that we're fixing to get into quite heavily, Father, into thy hand, I commit my spirit. Taken from Psalms 31, we begin to see that Christ is quite well versed in the scriptures, just like the Gospels tell us when he confronted the devil, always referring against the temptation by stating, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, what is this spirit of Christ? Well, they pierced his side, out of his side came blood and water. Again, another mystery which became something to do with eating his body and drinking his blood, some implements for the church. But what does these things really mean? Well, after we've read Acts and learned of the power on Pentecost, the cloven tongues of fire that came upon the apostles, who by mercy through Christ were given another chance to recover from their folly, we learn through Romans that there is a righteousness of God in Christ declare his righteousness. We learn in Corinthians, first and second. We learn in Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians. Oh, we have such a wealth of information of such intelligent men who speak sometimes very deep, mystical things about a God who is in the form of humanity, who is the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of God in the highest courts of the universe, who promises that one day he'll come again. Well, the last living apostle to this great controversy. And I might add, those who persecuted Christ, who would not hear him, no matter what sign was given, also persecuted his disciples. And finally, we end up in the book of Revelation where John, the last living disciple, on the Isle of Patmos, being a prisoner for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, which no doubt is the thing Jesus has to say, which would probably be quite controversial to the things that the Pharisees and Sanhedrin of the day had to say, we're sure. He, on this Isle of Patmos, a prisoner, 
on the Lord's Day had a vision. And it states in this vision, we should all be familiar with it, hopefully, or get familiar with it. He has a messenger, the angel of the Lord, come to him, who identifies himself as the Spirit. And he is told to write to the seven churches of Asia, of which we can see clearly in the scriptures, that they were given specific and direct messages from Christ. And in each one of these messages, Christ specifically told the churches what he would have them to do. Now we know that Christ is the only man in scripture who ever kept the law of God perfectly. We know that because we've heard the writings of the apostles. But sad to say, the religious leaders of his days and the majority of the populace of his days didn't think so. It's funny how that is. It's kind of like people always like to build the sepulchres of the dead prophets and garnish their tombs, but yet they hate and kill the living prophets. Only God knows why that is. But nonetheless, the church of Ephesus, Myrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the church is thus involved. For anyone to read, direct counsel is given, beginning with, and to the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, and then blah, blah, what happens is the message is given, and then the decision is up to those who profess Christ. Each council ends with, he that has an ear to hear, only if you want to know, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Finally, we get to the fourth chapter of Revelation, and the student of Scripture becomes interested in the subject, which, according to John says, after these things, of course he was referring to the last part of the third chapter of the message of Laodicea, he says, after these things, I saw, and behold, the door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which spake to me as the word of a trumpet talked with me, which says, come up hither, and I will show you that which must be hereafter. Now, the question to every true Christian is this. Is John telling us the truth, or is John lying to us? We know he just gave counsel to the seven churches of Asia, which were alive and hopefully in good health when he first gave these letters to them. But nonetheless, they, being of Asia, are no wise the same people of us today, or even of the oncoming years thereafter. So the events of chapter 4 clearly explained by John that his messenger, as sent to him, stated that he'd be taken up hither, therefore a door opened heaven, the Bible records, and he would be shown things which must be hereafter, sometime after John's day. Now what does he behold? In chapter 4 of Revelation, he says that he was in the Spirit. Immediately as in the Spirit, behold, a throne was set in heaven. And he states that the throne was occupied. One sat on the throne. And he that sat up on the throne was like to a jasper and a sardine stone. A careful student of Scripture knows all the way through prophecy, all the way through the Bible, as far as back as the days of Genesis, even to this prophecy of Deuteronomy 32, where it says, God is a rock. He is our rock, and his work is done in truth and in righteousness. All the prophets refer to God as a rock. Now here we see in Revelation, John likewise witnesses God as the appearance of a jasper and a sardine stone. He claims that there was a rainbow around about the throne, sight like an emerald. He carefully saw that there were living creatures around the throne, saying that God is holy, 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 which was and is and is to come. A God who created all things for his pleasure they were and are created. Now, this instruction 
emphasizes that there is a God, a kingdom, a judiciary, in the respect that John witnesses that there were 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones seems to imply a judgment. But uniquely enough, in this judgment, or in this throne, or in this heavenly sanctuary, as we see from the writings of Paul the Apostle, Paul talks about the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly Zion. In this sanctuary, we see a God, a rainbow, a throne, living creatures stating that God is holy, which was and has come, God of the past, present, and future, and that this God, who is created of all things, is holy and deserves to be worshipped. We continue on in chapter 5 to see that I beheld, John says, the right hand of him that sitting on the throne, a book or a scroll sealed with seven seals. Notice it's written on the inside and the back side. Well, the meaning of these things can only be speculated until we have solid proof. In other words, unless we were there ourselves to see it in detail. But what we are allowed to see in the scripture is John also beholds a mighty angel in this throne room where all these angels, thousands times ten, thousands and thousands and thousands are called together. And this mighty angel questions all in heaven. Who is worthy to open this book? and to loose the seven seals thereof. Clearly, Scripture states, no man in heaven, neither on earth, neither under the earth, of course, buried, in other words, we do have dead in this world, you know, was worthy to open, neither to look thereon. So, hey, God says in Scripture, at least John testifies in Scripture, that the mystery of God, his book, is sealed. Well, what happens is, as we continue on, we see in chapter 5 that John begins to weep until one of the elders says, Weep not, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof, of which we know the lamb being a symbol of Christ is brought to view. And John beheld a lamb that had been slain in the midst of the throne of the four beasts and the elders with seven eyes and seven horns. Well, what's the meaning of these things? If God does have a revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gives to him to show to his servant, then here we begin to see the meaning of these things. We see that God has a book, which must be hereafter, sometime after John's day. cannot be before John's day. The event is clearly identified as something which must be thereafter. And in this event, there's a judgment that takes place. The question, who is worthy? The answer, no man. The answer to this? only the Lamb. So in Scripture, the Lamb comes to the one on the throne and takes the book out of his right hand, and all of heaven bows before him and gives him glory and honor. And then John beheld the Lamb in chapter 6, beginning to open the seal. Now, I've heard a lot of statements the past couple of days from, from people that are versed in Scripture and for people that are students of Bible, saying this and saying that about the meanings of these seals. But remember, we already see that in heaven, Christ, when he reveals the seal, he's the only one that can do so. And remember, it's already been said, it's a revelation of him. So there's a mystery between God the Father, his book, and Christ and what he is to reveal. What scripture does tell us, though, is that John beheld Lamb opened the first seal in chapter 6. There was a noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts had come and see. John witnessed Excuse me. John witnessed that when he opened the first seal, 
there was, behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him had a crown. A bow was given to him, and went forth conquered and conquer. Well, how does this reveal Christ? Well, a lot of people tell you, well, this is the early Christian church, the white horse symbol of purity. Some even say this is the Antichrist. But now, wait a minute. A lot of opinions have been given on this subject. So also in the second seal. A male on a red horse has a great sword going forth, you know, killing one another. I mean, come on. Is this a revelation of Jesus Christ? One who has a foe conquered into conquer? Sounds like war. And the second seal, a great sword, they should kill one another? Sounds terrible. The third seal, man on a black horse has balances. You know, what's this wheat and barley stuff? Heard not the oil of the wine. The fourth seal, pale horse, the name of the one sitting on there is death and hell policies. How can these things reveal Christ? The fifth seal, souls under altar, crying to God to avenge their blood that was shed upon the earth. I mean, what is this? The sixth seal, when we stars being darkened, uh, the heavens departed the scroll, the sons of men crying to the rocks of the mountains to hide from the face of the one who sits on the throne. I mean, the one who sits on the throne. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ God gave to him. And remember, the most fearful warning ever given to man in Scripture is the warning found in Revelation 22, where Christ says, For I testify to every man that hears the words of this prophecy. If any man shall add to the words of this prophecy, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this prophecy. And if any man shall take away from the words of this prophecy, God shall take away his name out of the Lamb's book of life and from the things of this prophecy. Now that's fearful. That means this book is not to be messed with or pranked with by anybody who would dare think that they can, by speculation or private opinion, unlock the mysteries of the seals and what they contain. Remember the events of the seventh seal contained from the seventh chapter on the trumpet and the information thereof, just as the sixth seal contains information thereof. Well then, what must be hereafter after John's day? A revelation of who? Who gave it to him? Who only can reveal it? Revelation 22, who's going to come? What's he going to bring? His reward? What is his reward? Is it true in Isaiah 40, 41 that, that he's going to come with a strong hand? You know, who is this behold my servant whom I oppose? What do these things mean? Well, we know in the first seal that Christ opens it and we hear the noise of thunder one of the four beasts says come and see and behold a white horse he that set upon him had a bow a crown was given to him and he went forth conquering and to conquer well in order to understand this seal we have to find out a secret about christ in the council to the church of philadelphia we see Christ addresses that church in chapter 3 of Revelation with this message. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He these things saith, He that is holy, he that hath the
will make it shut it. Well, I have to put a little string. What could this mean? What is the key of David? Isaiah 22 talks about the key of David, but it refers to Eliakim. But still, what is the key of David? Well, of ancient time, Christ being the root and offspring of David, David was a great king in Israel. And David was anointed of God, being a shepherd lad. But through the power of God, he was able to overthrow the greatest obstacle in his day, Goliath, the Philistine. Using five smooth stones, he chose one, and it sunk deep into the forehead of the giant. Well, what happens is this. We see that this David wrote 150 psalms that are published in most Bibles of today's modern world. Now, I say that because some scholars will agree that there are other psalms, too. But as far as the King James and the books of that caliber, we have 150 psalms. Well, our subject is the first seal. We don't want to have any opinions, though. We just want to simply see if we can't find this mystery of God in the prophet. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 45, and let's see if we can't get some kind of hint in regards to what the first seal is. It states here, this is King James Version, my heart is indicted in good manner. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. What can this possibly mean? What does it mean, my heart is indicted in good manner? Does that mean my heart is indicted in good manner? Is somebody's heart indicted in good manner? I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. Does that mean, by interpretation, I speak of the things which I have made touching the king? Is our subject about a king? Is our subject about somebody's heart? Is our subject about my tongue as a pen of a ready writer? Now, who is talking here? Well, naturally, David of old talking here, correct? Well, who is the king he's talking about? Solomon? Well, let's see. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God has blessed thee forever. Well, Solomon was a wise man, wasn't he? Okay, it says here, Gird thy sword upon thy fire, most mighty. And with thy glory and thy majesty, and thy majesty rides prosperously because of truth. I wonder what's following ride. Probably rides a horse, doesn't he? And meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Huh. I guess with a sword in your right hand, you could probably learn a lot of terrible things. Whoa, verse 5. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Huh. Solomon doesn't seem really like too nice of a guy. That is, if you're his enemy. But anyway, thy throne, O God, is for... Huh? Wait a minute. Thy throne, O God, is forever... Now, wait a minute. Is David saying that Solomon is God? No, he's probably just saying that God is God. Huh. Well, why would a prophecy about Solomon have to do with God's throne? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy king is right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy... Wait a minute. Therefore, God, thy God, what could this possibly mean? Who is what God? Thy God hath anointed the oil of glass above thy fellows? This is very strange, or is it? Well, let's look at it again a little closer. Scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. Although David transgressed, and that in no wise like God's heart, but nonetheless, David was a prophet, and he was inspired. Could it be that David 
was used by God to write down God's messages that would one day be revealed by Christ? If Christ does have the key of David, would he not be able to reveal the heart of God? God in heaven looks to be a rock, doesn't he? Oh, hard rock God, right? God's law, God's heart. But wait a minute. Through Christ, we can see that God is not as hard as you think he is. Look at God. Come up hither in the light of the judgment and see the Father on the throne. See the book in his right hand and watch him give it to Christ and watch him open the first seal and let's see about this man on the white horse who has a crown and a bow. Now God is the one who has written. My heart has done in a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made. Is God a maker? Is he a creator? What does he want to talk about? Things he's made, touching the king. Who is the king? Could it be Christ? My tongue is a pen of ready writer. Did God write a book? Does God want to talk about his son according to a book? Well, why does God then think about his son? By what fairer than the children of men. Well, if that's what God thinks. Although Isaiah 53 says that when we see him, there's no beauty we should desire him. God nevertheless says he's fairer than the children of men. Why? Grace is poured into thy lips. Huh. I guess whatever Christ says, those who hear it will find grace, won't they? Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Well, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty. Is Christ the most mighty? With thy glory and thy majesty? I mean, it seems like in Revelation, all of heaven bowed before the Lamb, did they not? That's a lot of glory. But thou was slain to receive power, honor, glory, riches, wisdom, kingdom, might. Oh, that's a lot of inheritance there. Especially in the gospel, he says, I've received all things from my Father. And in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth. So what could this truth be? What truth in the Bible talks about uh, riding a horse prosperously? And it's truth. Uh, could it be revelation? Could it be the first seal? Maybe a truth about Christ. Maybe a truth about him being a king, which is a crown. Could it be a truth about him having a horse riding conquering and the conqueror? Huh. So because of truth, the truth of God's book, the heart, intention, and he's indicted. His tongue's a pen of a ready rider. He doesn't say nothing in the judgment. You see, he just gives it to the lamb. And you know the lamb, right posthumously, right in truth. Meekness and righteousness, my right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Ooh. Well, what's in his right hand? A sword or a book? Well, what does this book teach? By arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies? Surely, Solomon, was he a killer? Did he kill for God? Christ, is he a killer? Did he kill for God? Will Christ ever destroy the wicked? Or by the people fall unto thee? What kind of gospel is this? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Is Christ God? The scepter of thy kingdom is the right scepter. I mean, does he deserve to rule? Why? Does he love righteousness and hate wickedness? Therefore, God is not Christ God. Thy God is not his God the Father. Is he not going to anoint him above, with oil of gladness, above his fellows? What is this oil of gladness? All thy garments smell of myrrh and olives and cassia out of the ivory palaces, or the man they made thee glad. I mean, should Christ ever be made glad? Where's this at? When's this take place? King's daughters were among the honorable women. What's that? 
upon thy right hand to stand the queen and go of Ophir? How can this be Christ? Christ God. What would he be doing with a woman? Well, maybe she's the church. Maybe she's a spiritual church. Well, who's the king's daughters then? Huh, maybe there's more than one church. Well, whatever it may be, we know in verse 10, whether it's a spiritual church or a literal woman, there's one thing required. Hearken, O daughter, and consider. Consider what? Consider God's heart not in good matters. Considering who the king is. Considering who's going to be the powerful one, who's going to win. Considering about the throne of God. Considering maybe revelation. Who the Father gives the book to. And incline thine ear. Forget also thy own people and thy father's house. Well, if this was a spiritual church, it would seem kind of funny for God to tell this spiritual church to forget her own people, which would be her denomination of the Father's house, which would be, well, I thought her father would be God if it's spiritual. Now, if it was a literal girl, hearken, O daughter, and consider, and climb thine ear, then we can understand, naturally, if a girl's going to marry a man, she has to uproot the one family and join to another. Not completely, but we understand what we're saying. So if she wants to listen and learn, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Who's, who's Tyre? I wonder what that is. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. Rich people will entreat the favor of this queen? The king's daughter is all glorious within. How does she become the king's daughter? Within? Why is she glorious within? Does she have a truth or something? Is there some kind of light she has within her? Her clothes of rock gold. She should be brought into the king and raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought to thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy father, shall be thy children. Now what does that mean? Well, let's break this down. If Christ is the Son of God, if that's the case, and if we all are sons of God, if we believe in Christ, then naturally, every girl would be a daughter of God, wouldn't she? When we look up to the Father on the throne of which we want to exalt, we know that he is greater than all. And he's Christ's Father, and he's also everyone's Father. And Psalms 83 says, God says, I said you're gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Hosea teaches us, the word is said, you're not my people, there should be said, you're the sons of the living God. So, Christ says in the Gospels, if he called them God, then the word of God came, the law cannot be broken. Well, we're learning God's word, it's God's spirit. This is what makes us become born again, born by the spirit, the knowledge of God. Well, so, so a girl believes in God, and so does everybody else that believes in God. So therefore, God the Father has many children, doesn't he? Christ being the firstborn, and there one everywhere, and all thereafter that believe. But instead of thy father, shall be thy children. Thou mayest make princes in all the earth. <sighs> to the person that doesn't really understand Scripture, this would seem to be a very controversial subject. I mean, Christ never had any wife. It has to be spiritual. I'll make thy name remembered in all generations, therefore, for the people praise thee forever and ever. Well, even if it is spiritual, we know one thing. We know that the servants of God know that Psalms 45 is the very prophecy which must be hereafter according to the first seal. But just to make sure we know it's going to be fulfilled, let's turn in our Bible to Revelation 19, just so that we can get a better caption of what we are really looking at. Now remember, in the 18th chapter of Revelation, we know 
that Babylon the Great fall. She made all nations drink of some kind of wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, we find that something very bad happened, and then in verse 23 of chapter 18, no more light of a candle shall shine there, nor the voice of the bridegroom, nor the voice of the bride. Well, the merchants were the great men of the earth, it says in verse 23, and for their, by their sources were all nations deceived. We all know about capitalization. We know about advertisement, selling something, making it better than what it really is. For there was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. You see, just because people don't accept the truth from God's word does not mean it's not truth. And some truths that we might teach could get us in trouble. But anyway, in verse chapter 19 it says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. And hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. Why? For true and righteous for his judgment. I wonder what his judgments were. Isaiah 51 talked about judgments of God. So it's about hearken to me to seek after righteousness. You to seek the Lord. Look to the rock whereby you're used. Again, remember in Revelation, God's the rock. If God's the rock, then he's the only one who can make us new, right? And it says, look to the pit from which you're dug in Isaiah 51. It talks about Abraham and the promises of God. This says, hearken to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light to the people. Now, we know that the law of God is the Ten Commandments. But we know when God sent his son into the world, he was the law made flesh. And although he kept the law perfectly, nonetheless, he also forgave based upon men's ignorance. Father, forgive them for what they do. But he also committed his spirit to the hand of God so that none will be without excuse. We all know in the right hand of God there's more light, more light to be known. So if God's judgments, which are the seven seals, are righteous and true, because he judges the great whore, which no doubt a whore is not a very faithful bride, is she? Absolutely not. Which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and at the venge of blood of his servants at her hand. It seems like this great whore doesn't really commit itself to God, herself to God, does she? And she probably will be responsible for the blood of God's servants because she probably won't know where they're coming from. And again, they said, hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. We know Babylon the Great is a big whore, right? I mean, she's not really very faithful when it comes to God's word, when it comes to knowing God's truth. And I bet you she's the kind of person that will claim to be with a guy, love a guy, not even know where he's coming from. That's how most whores are, isn't it? Just think of how many people claim they love Jesus Christ and that they're his servants. They don't even know where the seals are found in the prophecies. Huh, I wonder what that could mean. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God and set up on the throne. And a voice came out of heaven, verse 5, says, Praise our God, how many? All ye his servants. And ye that fear of both small and great. Heard a word, a voice of a great multitude, of the voice of many waters, as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, all-powerful reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb, which we learned about in Psalms 45, is come. So here we see that in Psalms 45, the Lamb only has to destroy his enemies. And who are his enemies? Those who do not believe the word of God. Now, if a person never had a chance, no. You've got to forgive them for they don't know what they do. But should anybody dare try to go against the truth of God and try to hurt Christ because they know not and refuse to know, well, then we're talking something serious. Let us be glad to give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. 
How do you think that girl in Psalms 45 made herself ready? Do you think she made herself ready by denying God on a throne? By denying the importance of the Lamb opening the first seal? Do you think she made herself ready by denying that Christ had a key of David? Well, if so, then Psalms 45 wouldn't mean nothing to her, would it? But anyway, it says, To her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteous of saints. My friend, are you right? Are you right? Don't worry about me. Are you right? Does your father sit on the throne? Does he have a book in his hand? Did he give it to the one you say you love? Was the promise that I come or was with me, was that not true? For someone that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, do you not believe God's heart indicts a good matter? The question and the judgment is not who's done wrong or who's done evil. The question is who is worthy. Now, Christ doesn't come to be worthy above you. Christ comes to give you his knowledge, his righteousness. It is not right that Psalms 45 is the same as the first seal. It is not Revelation 19 confirming this. Well, if she has the righteousness of saints, we as saints, do we not know rightly how to divide the word of God? Line upon line, precept on precept, to see here, there, and a little here and there a little, the truth of God? And he said to me, right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Well, some people may not think so. But now notice how John wanted to fall down and worship before the feet of the angel who showed him these things. He says, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What do you want to do? Do you want to learn about the wrath of Christ by him riding a white horse in the heavens and destroying the unbelievers? Or would you rather him just come and teach you these things ahead of time? And John saw heaven open to behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. He doesn't do it out of unrighteousness. There's a truth that's almost 2,000 years old called the Revelation. And men have built up empires and churches all in the name of Christ. But have they given to their people the knowledge of which only the Lamb can give? No. His eyes were a flame of fire. The way he sees, seven eyes really burn. And on his head were many crowns. He takes those from the kings of the earth, you know. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. People don't understand what the name Koresh means. No one knows. Scholars cannot tell you. Look at all the concordances, they don't know. But yet it's found in Isaiah 45. It was originally a name given to a Persian king over through ancient Babylon. But there's a mystery to that name Koresh. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood because people don't like to learn the truth. It's not out of their own head. And his name is called the Word of God. That's why so many times Christ has to be rejected. For people know not the word of God, and without knowing the word of God, the book, they'll not know the seals. Without knowing the seals, they'll do unto Christ, fulfilling Isaiah, excuse me, Matthew 24, where the carcass is, there were the eagles together together. Why? Because Isaiah says he'll come in a strong hand. And what's stronger than that book with seven seals? That's the word of God, fulfilling what it says in John. He that believeth me on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. For my doctrine is not my own, but his that sent me. And the armies which are in heaven follows him upon white horses. There, that's the Armageddon here, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, Isaiah 13 will tell you more details. Just like in Joel 2, you'll also learn in Joel 2, as well as 
Zephaniah, Amos, Noshia, all the different prophecies referring to these seals. Now, let me emphasize something to you again. When you read Psalms 1, always keep your mind up here. Remember, I'm giving you a key of David now. I'll share with you. Every time you read a psalm, like in Psalms 1, the judgment is the one spoken of in Revelation 4 and 5. When you read Psalms 2, the heathen that rage, that imagine vain things, they're the ones whose thoughts are contrary to the thoughts of God, against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. You see, when the Lamb comes again, there's only one way to know who He is. He has to reveal the seven seals. The men may not be judged by the law, for all have broken the law and come short of the glory of God. So they might be judged by nothing more than truth. Because notice in Psalm 2, the heathen rage, they imagine a vain thing, they want to stop this anointed one, because the, let us make his bands asunder. What do you think that is? How many bands are there on the book? There are seven bands on the book. Well, this is happening today. And he that sits in heaven, that's the Father, you know, sitting on the throne, he laughs. He laughed while men began to make the worst mistake they've ever made. All the nations from Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome were judged by a judgment, and they fell when it became time for God to make them fall. Now, yes, in Psalms 2 it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord said unto me, Thou my son, this day have I begotten thee. Well, aren't we all sons of God if we hear the words of God? Now, the Psalms are not written because Christ is desiring to destroy mankind. On the contrary, the warnings of Psalms 1 in the light of the judgment is so that men might fear and receive redemption. The same as Psalms 2. Absolute terrible warnings are given, such as, I will dash on the pieces with a rod of iron. Right? We know Christ would never want to do that. But finally, it comes to a time when the judgment must begin. Clearly, it says, Now, therefore, be ye wise, ye kings of the earth. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sunny to be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now, ministers should show you where the seals are. I've just given you a small little taste. Is Psalms 45 the same as Revelation? Doesn't that make it plain? It's the subject of Christ getting married. A subject of Christ having to deal with the enemies who believe not God's word. Does not Psalms 1 teach us to stand in the judgment, don't sit in the seat of the scornful of the sinners? Only God's thoughts are holy. And when God's thoughts be revealed in the seven seals, all true Christians should make that their first and foremost interest. In Psalms 2, why do they even have to rage? Why do they have to fight the guy that's got the seal? In Psalms 3, who's the person there that says, many say of my soul there's no help for him but God? How come people have to judge according to the appearance of things, but they won't open their eyes and ears to hear where a person coming from. In Psalms 4, who is the one speaking there where it says, O oh, ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you seek after leasing and love vanity? But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Who in the heavens has God separated from all of heaven apart that is godly for himself? The Lamb who wishes to judge no man after the flesh but gives to all men a truth in the fulfillment of the testimony of John, that if you continue in my doctrine, then you are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In Zechariah, who is that man on the red horse? Doesn't Revelation talk about a man on a red horse? How does it apply? In the third hill, 
the book of Hosea. Who is that merchant man with the balances of the sea that Hosea speaks of? Could it be that man who has balances? Who's trying to sell? I mean, what are we dealing with here? Where is the fourth seal found in the prophecy? The fifth seal. The sixth seal. The importance of the seals is that if you do not listen, you're going to end up making the worst mistake you've ever made in all of your life. We made an agreement with the ATF agents that if they would allow me to have national coverage with this tape, that I might give to the world a small, minute, small, minute bit of the information that I have tried so hard to share with people. That if I would do this, that all the people would say, here at the facility compound here, as y'all call it, will give ourselves over to the world, give ourselves out to you. And this is what I promised, and this is what we're going to keep. Now remember, Revelation chapter 13 tells us very clearly what our ideology should be towards that beast. And all the world that wonders after that beast, who do they worship? Remember, before I said it to you, God said it. They worship the dragon. So will Christ give anybody for worshiping the dragon unwillingly? No, just like the woman of the well. Woman, you know not whom you worship, Christ told her. But now in spirit and in truth, let's come up here to where I come from. Let's believe in a God on the throne now. All churches, papacy, Lutherans, we're all brethren. But let's get into unity with one God, one truth, one Lamb, one Spirit. And let's receive the reward of righteousness. Thank you very much. God bless. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.